0: Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and uh, welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. I'm David Nutt and tonight with me, I have one of the true greats of the psychedelic space a man who was there at the very beginning, and still here now, and still pioneering research and developments in this field. His name will be familiar to all of you. He's Jim Fadiman. Welcome, Jim.
1: Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here, and it's, it's wonderful that, that you and I are connecting, because we kind of, we overlap in so many areas, but we actually haven't had much time to talk to one another.
0: No, you helped me out with the review of microdosing, and that was very, very helpful. We published a couple of years ago. But I I want to get to microdosing a bit later, a bit like you, really. I I want to start at the beginning, and I want you to tell me and and the listeners about your beginnings because I'm not sure many people know about them.
2: Well,
1: many, many years ago, (laughs) psychedelics were basically unknown except that Sandoz Pharmaceuticals, was desperately trying to figure out how they could commercialize this peculiar chemical.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I entered, I met my undergraduate mentor, Richard Alpert, in Paris, where I was living. And uh, he said to me, The greatest thing in the world has happened to me, and I want to share it with you. And I thought, Well, that sounds like a, a pretty nice offer. I said, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and then he reached in his breast pocket and came out with a little vial of pills. And I thought, what is going on? I was so straight that I, I didn't drink coffee. Although I was living in Paris, I did have a bit of wine, but but very seldom. And here was someone offering me some kind of pill for something. However, I decided what that my mentor probably knew what he was doing. And so we sat in a cafe on the boule miche and had, I had some psilocybin and Richard didn't. And after a while, the colors improved. The whole ambiance felt quite lovely. And I was paying attention to the conversation of people walking behind me, as you, you would in a cafe. You hear all this conversation. And then I had this moment where I realized I didn't speak French well enough to understand them. But tonight, I was. <laughs> that was my first revelation that something odd was going on. And it, and it got a little more intense. I think we now call it coming up. And I said to Richard, this is really too much for me. And he says too much for me too. I said, well, you didn't take anything. He says "It's my first night in Paris. <laughs> so we withdrew to my uh, fifth floor walk up. <laughs> Let us say I was living on the thrifty side of things. And by the end of the uh, long evening or the long night, I had begun to relax certain of my very core beliefs. Now, In retrospect, and and because we use these terms more clearly, this was a moderate dose of psilocybin. This was not very much. However, he was on his way to Copenhagen to meet up with Tim Leary and Aldous Huxley, and they were presenting the first major presentation about their work to the World Congress of Psychologists. So I showed up, nobody asked me. I left Paris and went to Copenhagen. I was following this, this track and uh, had another evening with Richard and again, let go of some belief systems, but also came to the position they were in, which was that this was a, an experience of enormous bonding and that one would, would do anything for someone else in this relationship, but one also wouldn't ask for anything that would be inappropriate. So it's a kind of, I'll do anything for you, but you're not going to ask for anything too hard. And we parted and went on our way and life went on. And I met someone in Scotland a few years later, a few weeks later, who later became a fiance because I was really quite open and lovely and ended up as a first year graduate student at Stanford University. The alternative life position would have been to go to Vietnam. My choice would have been to stay in Paris as long as I possibly could. So I was a inadvertent graduate student. And at Stanford, there was a group, or actually near Stanford in the city of Menlo Park, there was a little group called the International Foundation for Advanced Study. Myron Stolaroff, Willis Harmon, other people that are in the history. And they said, why don't you have a session with us? And I thought, oh, a lovely bonding event. And I showed up and took probably 200 micrograms of LSD, And after a while, I was not interested in bonding. I was interested in lying back on the couch and putting on an eye shade and hearing music. And that changed most of my life. That changed my belief systems about the nature of self, the nature of identity, uh, probably the nature of time and space. And when I returned to being Jim Fadiman, it was with real puzzlement, is why I was back having been out beyond my identity why i had returned to being this first year graduate student which seemed to be a, a terribly worthless place to be if one was going to going to inform the world of the possibilities of these substances
0: so you, you were an undergraduate in doing not specializing you met all professors undergraduates. yes
1: i did the only dissertation stanford allowed about psychedelics Stanford was a little terrified at becoming like the Harvard of the West, where they just fired Tim Leary and and Dick Albert, and it was a big scandal. So suddenly, suddenly my work became something we didn't want to talk about.
2: Right, right.
0: But then you went back as a graduate student to do a PhD in what, in psychology or in... in...
1: Well, I was informed that if I did a dissertation on psychedelic therapy, which is what I did, that I would never have a, a decent academic career. And that was pretty much true, and I'm very, very grateful for that. But I did end up filling in for Abraham Maslow, who was, had just been the president of the American Psychological Association,
2: yeah.
1: for a year at Brandeis as a teacher in psychology. And uh, that worked well for, I think, for Brandeis and for myself, except that I, this was not my culture. These were not my people. And I came west with my wife and a child and no job. And my career unfolded from that, so I really did some teaching. I did some university work. I actually taught in design engineering at Stanford for a number of years, uh, part time. But I've always been maintaining the implications of that October nineteenth, nineteen sixty one event, which shifted my awareness of the of the possibilities of for human beings. Mm. And so that's the work that I'm still doing. In the last 10 years or so, I've been working with microdosing, which is the, the tiniest amounts of psychedelics you can imagine. And that's a totally uh, different realm. It's 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 kind mm. of on at least American radio, there's AM and there's FM and there are different sets of frequencies mm. and they have very different programming. And that, mm. that's a, a poor analogy for for what my last 10 years have been.
0: Well, we'll come back to that, as I say, later. But let, let's go back to the beginnings, because you pioneered the idea of, I think, of psychedelics and, and problem solving and creativity. Can you tell us about that?
1: We were running basically a little clinic, a really outpatient clinic. We had permission from the government to do that. And then Willis Harmon and I were talking, and he felt that psychedelics could be used for hard science problems. And it didn't make a lot of sense because people were taking psychedelics at the at the level we were giving it, and losing interest, let alone in their problems, in their career or in their physical being. Uh-huh. And it seemed a little bizarre that we could do this. However, and this is not in not in the literature. What we really did is we got together four of us and we took a low, lower dose, uh-huh. uh, prob- probably fifty. Right? And as a group, we tried to create, to design the study to see if groups like ours could create, could basically set up a problem-solving research study. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that we did a pretty good job. And we also found that working as a small group was not going to work very well. So we ended up designing a study where we had individuals who were senior scientists and who had to get into this study, you had to have a problem that you had been working on for several months and had not made progress. You had basically failed. Yep. Now, these were people with a very, very small amount of failure in their careers. These were very successful people. And our reasoning was that in order to keep people interested in their problem, their science problem, mm-hmm. they had to have an emotional component. They had to care. Yep. yep. And so they had to care to, in a sense, recover some of their self-esteem. So that was how you got into our study. And through willis Harmon and some others, we really were in touch with senior scientists. And what we just said is, this is an opportunity for you to work on your hardest problem. And we think it'll be very successful. So we were also setting up a, a set and setting or placebo generating, if one likes that kind of term, situation where they would be likely to be successful. And so the, we also gave them some psychological tests or tests in the literature, quote, for creativity. And we picked, we tried to pick tests that were known to be extraordinarily stable, meaning you could take them every five years and your score wouldn't change. So we were looking at things which the psychological community felt were were givens in the system, in your own mental system. So we did that. And as one newspaper many years later said... 48 problems 44 solutions we had patents we had products we had publications come out of this and probably most remarkably with one exception people did not go into their personalities did not go into the the geometrics or the beauties of of, Mm -hmm. but actually looked forward to working on their problems and Again, we did a little bit of research, and they, they indicated that their creativity maintained at a higher level for the next few months. So that was the study, and it's really not been replicated in the scientific literature. It's been replicated endlessly, certainly in Silicon Valley. At one point, if one looked around and said, of you 100 heads of corporations in Silicon Valley, how many of you owe one of your major insights for the products you're now making to your own psychedelic investigations? And the answer would have been 20 or 30 of those hands would have been raised. So it's quite well known that psychedelics influence creativity. Mm. It faded away in the scientific world because only people who worked illegally were allowed to take psychedelics Mm. for the next, you know, 40, 50 years and till now.
0: I want to come back to that in a minute, because, you know, it's remarkable that, you know, you were there, you saw it changing. But before I do that, let me just talk a little bit, because you didn't just use psychedelics, did you? You also, I think, sometimes use methadrine or other stimulants to, to promote? Uh,
1: no, well, we used we used either LSD or mescaline, and this was literally depending on what the government agency who was bothering us was bothering us about. So we literally, after a while, we, we basically could cross-dose. have approximately the same effect right right. with the creativity study most of it was mescaline oh we also we did not with our clinical patients we sometimes would add some kind of an energizer
0: yeah that's the term you used yes i remember during
1: the early part of the day simply because this was a very very intense and tiring day and we also offered people sleeping medication again offer a long clinical day much higher dose and very few people took it with our Science people that didn't happen at all, and almost without exception, what they said is i worked I kept going on the things that i'd been working on in the afternoon, and I got to bed at three in the morning yeah. and I was very happy
0: so there's always this this interesting question about uh, what determines the, sort of the nature and the direction of people's psychedelic experiences, and you're saying if people have got a, a serious problem, they'll go in there and they'll keep the problem will become the center of the of their being, of their experience. And
1: well it's a it's a set and setting question. So if yeah. you look at say the PTSD research, from the first day people want to enter the study, they're focused on their PS, their their yeah. mental illness and their their pre-work with not with a trainer and not with a coach, but with a therapist. And they are urged during the session to think about the the traumas that are, we think now, caught in the um, diglia instead of being part of the brain, memory system, and so forth. And so those studies are highly focused on getting the results they're interested in. And when people actually wander away from, in the therapy sessions, from material that is therapeutically valuable, they're brought back. We basically set it up so that these people were eager to work on science problems. So not surprisingly, and we didn't have the cultural background. Remember, nobody much knew what psychedelics were capable of. And we were using a dose where you maintain your identity. And once you've maintained your identity, then the issues that interest you are those that interest your identity. If you're doing something therapeutic, what we know is it's healthier to let go of your identity so that you can see that your problems are a much smaller part of your total being. That's a very different mindset. So the creativity study was a combination of extreme set and setting. We had them in the night before in groups of four, Uh and they would very briefly tell each other what problems they were working on. In our session room, we actually had four people going at once. They just didn't talk to each other. And at the end of the day, again, they would chat because these, again, were often people who knew each other, and uh, there were people who loved science. And the range of problems was from architectural design, designing a set of buildings, to a new theory of the photon.
2: Oh, so right. right. Is-
1: and the the theory of the photon one did get published. <laughs> and was it correct? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> that's why we call them theories.
2: Yes, uh, right. But I right. will
1: say probably the most And I've never really understood this one myself, but Willis describes it in a a BBC interview some years later, is a number of people were interested in circuit design. This was the beginning of the computer age. And one person would set up in his mind a mental experiment where he would lay out a circuit board. And then in his mind, he would run electricity through it. And in his mind, he would see where it failed. And then he would, in his mind, replace that part or change the wire or change the voltage. And then he would run electricity through it, again, in his mind okay. to see. Now, what's fascinating about that, he was clearly setting up a situation in which he and the rest of the universe had no had no pre-knowledge of what would work or what would not. Mm-hmm. But he was able to run experiments as if they were totally physical in his mind. So... I leave that to my neuroscientist friends who wish I wouldn't bring up things like this.
0: No, well, it's remarkable. And and it was that from those experiments then you went on to work with Engelhardt in this augmentation research center.
2: Is that right?
1: Well, Doug Engelbart was part was one of our subjects. Ah. And that came because I was actually consulting to his his project. And Doug Engelbart uh, is the person who in, who invented the mouse. But That's he nice. invented mouse only as a tool because he was inventing the idea, and it's again hard for us to get, we didn't always think this way, to have the computer work with words. Before Engelbart, computers were things that could generate curves which would match a, a an equation. So it was incredibly radical that you could use computers not only to, to record words, but to move them around and, and all the things. Cut and paste was invented by Engelbart. Right. So so I was a consultant to that project, which is a whole other wild part of my life.
0: Well, tell us about it. This is a great opportunity. I, I've only just learned about it from briefing myself and you.
1: There was a Near Stanford University, there was a research institute called the Stanford Research Institute, SRI. And it basically took in clients, government, commercial, etc., and said, we will we'll invent things for you. We will solve problems. We will do research studies. We will do surveys. You know, we're kind of a science little market. And one of the projects was the Engelbart project called Augmenting Human Intellect. What Engelbart's fantasy was, and again, you have to get that at this point, I'm in now a, a room the size of a two-car garage the computer that Doug had to work with would fill this room. (laughs) His vision was that on your desk, there would be a computer. And that computer would connect you to a great deal of human knowledge. That was his wild, far-out fantasy. And he was deeply ridiculed by most of the computer profession. Really? (laughs) And he found one little area of the federal government somebody who believed in him who funded the beginnings of this the creation of the mouse the first one was made from a little wood block and so forth and so in the time i was consulting with that group they had what was what is now called in the computer history the mother of all demos and it was a demonstration of word processing of cut and paste a number of things And it was done at a very, very large national computer conference. The Engelbart's place was about 30 miles from San Francisco. They literally ran a telephone line, a physical line, from the laboratory to the computer group. And Doug appears on a very large screen, which we're now very used to, with a mouse and talking. And the split screen shows what's happening. This really transformed the computer industry. And a number of brilliant, complicated computer, early computer people ended up working with Doug. And one in particular, I remember, Charles Irby, he was at that demo. And wherever he was doing, I believe, graduate work or postgraduate work, he showed up the next day at at, at SRI. And he said, I want to work with this group. We said, we don't have any openings. He said, I'll wait. And the next day he was in the lobby. And the next day he was in the lobby. And he became a very, very core member of, of the team. So that and that team, if one looks at uh, kind of history of Silicon Valley with all those little lines of where you worked and so forth, these people were an important set of resources for Silicon Valley. But it came out of Engelbart's personal vision of a that a personal computer was a possibility.
0: Do you think was the vision in any way encouraged or even? Seeded by psychedelics, could could we claim, claim the computer as a? I'm always sorry that, that Doug had already
1: invented the mouse by the time he yeah. came. <laughs> to the group. I would say that the vision was fairly solid, and the you know, Doug's being part of the creativity group moved parts of it along because also his second in command, William English, also was part of that group, and by that time they had lots and lots of problems, but the basic structure was there and they were in a sense waiting for the computer industry to move from the, the room size and in a demonstration in a discussion at Stanford like 30 years later a kind of major celebration of this demo the person uh, running the the event said this holds more computer power than Engelbart had in his laboratory and 24 people were running off of that computer <laughs> and you You'll get why I was why I was asked to be part of this. Why is a psychologist part of this?
0: Yeah, quite. Tell us why.
1: <laughs> they were all using a computer language that they were writing, okay? Now, we don't see it as much anymore, but the, uh, computers crash. And if you're writing a program and you're working that program to write the next piece of it, the chances of a crash go way up, and the level of technology was such. So you have 20 people working on 20 computers, 20 monitors, they're all working on the same language. And if anyone crashes, everyone crashes, okay? Now, these are not people who are socially adept. These are people who are wonderful and brilliant and did not go into computers out of of social (laughs) graces. So I was there in part to prevent people from harming one another. And how could you develop systems of working where you actually were trusting that your day's work would not be destroyed at any given instant right, by that. the person next to you and vice versa so that was one of the very interesting it's issues so- that i was asked to help on the other problem was that, same here, same that
0: here. Yeah.
1: Uh, doug engelbart staggering certified genius in lots of ways he tended to communicate with little sketches and assumptions that you somehow would have understood him if you knew a lot more which meant he didn't communicate terribly well and i would go into these meetings and doug would be presenting something and people would be talking and in all candor as a psychologist i had no idea what anyone was talking about but i was very sensitive to when people stopped understanding one another and so i would interrupt and suggest that perhaps something needed to be clarified. And working with Doug was really the same way. as He would, in a sense, run the ideas through me to see if they were understandable. So it was a fascinating, one of the most interesting consultings of my career. And computers and psychedelics became interwoven later on, but not at this point.
2: There he is. Hello, Jim. <laughs> Thank you, James.
1: <laughs> yes, that was what we would call in in those days a crash, when we just lost communication with each other. I went on talking, perhaps into empty space, and uh, here we are again. So the technology has improved so that we can uh, recover from crashes much more easily.
0: Right, so Jim, you were saying to me, what, I, you were saying, why did you, they need a psychologist? And, and then you started to explain to me, they needed a psychologist because all these nineteen people, whatever, were working off the same computer. They were all writing their own programs, and the computer would crash. And at that moment, your computer crashed.
2: But now you're back. Okay, well, so why don't you finish that anecdote?
1: I appreciate the universe having its own little joke, but if you would, if you wouldn't mind, no <laughs> more crashes. Basically, they had to get along at a level that teammates usually don't because they were working on the same language. They were using a language to create a, more of the same language. And if one computer crashed, everyone in the group lost their work.
2: Oh, right. So this was right. a
1: very difficult time. And then at night, there was people that came in and worked with the giant computer saving material. So, this was a very, we would now call this an amazingly large but primitive system. And this was run as part of a network with military systems and some university systems, and the first communication between two groups, meaning not in the next room, but in the next state. This was the group that first did computer to computer communication. So, they did a lot of the breakthroughs that we now assume or we have no idea that anyone ever worked without them.
0: But you were the psychologist making it all run smoothly. Is that what you're saying?
1: No, I was the psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> A psychologist who was there to make sure that people both cooperated and helped each other as best they could. But also, when communications broke down, it's not necessarily clear to people what went on or who's not understanding whom. Just as we had this crash, unbeknownst to uh, any of you who will ever see this, I went on talking for several minutes, somewhat oblivious that we had crashed going over some of this material. And so David and I were no longer in any kind of rapport. But we we were in this situation. There's no way out. This is the time we have to do this program. So I was the person who often would deal with people who who had lost it in some way, as well as deal with the simple question of moving technology from here to here
0: is not that easy. Jim, let me just explain to the listeners what you've just done. When he said "here," he was pointing to his brain, right. and when he said the second "here," he was pointing to the keyboard. I think. Yeah, and that's a that's a very large gap, yes. and
1: particularly when no one's ever done it. So that was the group. And it was a a remarkable group. And some people did actually have, I wouldn't say a mental breakdown, but a mental breakout. One of the group ended up running for governor of Nevada, one state over, on a religious platform. And that came not from working on the computer, but from his own experiments with LSD, which was now coming into the culture illegally.
0: I see. Well, I want to ask you about that. I mean, given that so you were there at the beginning and you saw the enormous potential and value. You know, 44 out of 48 senior scientists, academics, architects solving problems. You must have been so positive. And, and then you saw it all fall apart. Uh, what's your take on what went wrong?
1: Well, nothing went wrong on our side. We had what was called an investigational exemption, meaning these substances were not for sale but the government freely gave research exemptions. And at the time we were doing our study, there were perhaps 60 different research projects, people giving LSD to fish and to mice and to uh, autistic children and to other clinical studies. When I entered it in 1961, I asked Sandoz, I, I don't know, I didn't know any better, I wrote Sandoz and said, is there any other research about psychedelics? And I received two large volumes. And that was the abstract only of the first thousand studies. So at this time, LSD was the most studied research psychiatric drug on the planet. So there was a lot of it. Okay. And we were just doing our research and we got a letter from the federal government that said, as of the receipt of this letter, your research is canceled. What, what, what? No reason, no discussion. And, At the time we got the letter, there were four senior scientists in our treatment room uh, with headphones, and in an hour or so, they would take off their headphones, and they would start to work on their problems. And the federal government said, your research is canceled. Now, I was the junior member here. I'm the graduate student. And I looked at my colleagues, and I said, I think we got this letter tomorrow. Yes. We did. And our research ended not for any, and all the other 60 projects had the same letter. So the government wasn't they they were paying attention to what we were doing but we were we were kind of it's kind of like if you have a load of firewood and you're going to put it all in the fire and you have a you know one little beetle there and you're the beetle you get thrown in the fire and anything you did so the research the formal research ended but as i've said the notion that psychedelics could be helpful in science Escaped the laboratory, as we might say, and became part of the technical technological revolution, as true in England as is true in the United States.
0: But it was the U.S. that led the drove the ban, drove the making these drugs illegal. What was what was your take on it at the time? Did you understand what was going on at the time? We really had no idea
1: because it was the most research drug on the planet S- Sandoz was hundred percent supportive there were other interesting works going on and we were seeing obviously as a little clinic we were seeing some wonderful healing breakthroughs and suddenly the government did what it did Now we now know historically it never had anything to do with science it never had anything to do with the effects of psychedelics. President Nixon, didn't like various groups who didn't like him and that included hippies it included blacks it included various groups particularly didn't like anti-war groups which all of these groups used either psychedelics or marijuana and we have this recorded from one of his assistants who said we were looking for a way we couldn't just go arrest people for being hippies or being anti-war however if we could make what they were using illegal we could then infiltrate them we could break them up we could do all the kinds of things that government does when it decides to attack an enemy and that's basically what happened now the curious part is because none of us knew this a great many scientists and legislators then decided well if it's illegal then must be bad because the government doesn't do foolish rational things so if it's bad what might it be bad about and then we have this whole mythology of how various problems and psychedelics cause now one of the things we know is psychedelics uh, <laughs> and we know that <laughs> because of a famous paper written by david Nutt. okay <laughs> that these The safest, (laughs) the safest substances out there. So what we ended up with was a great deal of pseudoscientific nonsense created by perfectly nice people who were trying to second guess why the government would make something illegal. And there we are. And so we're still just unwinding that. And we're now, of course, in what's called a psychedelic renaissance. I'd say more it's a psychedelic recovery.
0: Um, yeah, that's a better way of putting it. You're right. Yes. Well,
1: because a lot, so much of the research now going on is is replicating research that we already done. So when someone says, oh, my God, psychedelics reduce depression. And I think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do that 60 years ago. Now, they say, but you didn't use a double blind. And I said, well, we didn't have any funding. You try, you try doing a double blind without funding and you'll find that they're much too expensive. And when you're doing research to find out what you already know, it's, a, it's pretty easy to design the research. Now, right now, I think we're getting into genuinely different research. But for a lot of the research that, that has been the core of the Renaissance has been catching back up to where we were in the, in the mid 60s.
0: But so, Jim, that must have had a huge impact on your career. What, what did you do? Was it, when you, after that letter the day after? What did you do the day after? <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> oh my goodness! The day after, I thought, well, I've been told that if I do my dissertation, which I just done on psychedelics, I'll never get an academic job. And I thought, so I was fine. I was working with psychedelics, and then they said, well, and you can't work with psychedelics either. Okay. And I have a wife and I have a child and I looked around for other things to do. And I finally realized if I had learned something about consciousness and about culture and about a lot of things through my psychedelic research, then perhaps I had either some skills or some abilities that the culture could use. So I ended up working with a small consulting firm that had four psychologists. And one of them was had a, a Ford Foundation grant to go work in Africa for a year. Now, he happened to have been someone who knew about our research and we had actually worked with him. And so he said to me, I have some clients, my consulting clients, would you like to work with them? <laughs> I said, in essence, under my breath, you mean a real job and I get paid? Oh, <laughs> I'm very interested in your clients. Now, his clients was a wonderful melange of for me to learn things. It was a number of nursing schools in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, Foster's Freeze, which is a, a, a soft ice cream franchise. Yep. Um, and there were two others. And also, also, AT and uh, ITT, which were one of the first conglomerates, they had 150 companies, and I was uh, asked to do to look at senior executives who were interested in high jobs entering that system. So I had everything from the Foster's Freeze people, through the nurses, to uh, senior executives, and so I was gifted as a start of my career, seeing if my understanding of consciousness could cross a lot of. Kind of occupational lines and it it did well enough and then i was offered a job at brandeis for a year teaching filling in for maslow and and my career went my children have said that the hardest question they were ever asked as children is what does your father do (laughs) because i really had part-time jobs for most of my career a number of them
0: but you still carried on writing about psychedelics
1: I carried on, but not very well. I was not one of the, you know, the determined underground. No. I did not know, at that point, the major underground chemists. Uh, and one of the chemists, by the way, just so we have a little bit of, of what went on, one of the chemists has said, and it's quite true, he said, we made a hundred million doses of LSD. And then he went on to say, he thought that made the world a better place. but. This was one of the chemists. So when LSD was made illegal at the top, it proliferated at the bottom. And Mm -hmm. just look at the United States, and I don't know the British figures, but since LSD became illegal, now we're just talking about LSD, not psilocybin, not, not ecstasy, so forth, just LSD. 36 to 40 million Americans have taken LSD since it became illegal. And if we run that against education, we're talking mainly people in the top fifty percent of education.. Yes. So when the Renaissance started, it instead of meeting both kind of ignorance and government opposition, it met a whole generation of people who were quite sure that the official government position was not based on science. And their own personal experience suggested that psychedelics probably had a whole lot of advantages, and that's where we are. And I think that's one of the reasons that the research, until now, all of the research, again in the states, has been privately funded. This is now, from two thousand six to now, has been privately funded. Now, why do you privately fund psychedelic research? Is because you believe that there's some value. We now have just the first moment where the federal government has funded a clinical study. So that didn't happen in the 60s. We didn't have that huge support base.
0: Yes. So, Jim, let's get on to what most people know you for and what you're famous for, which is flying the flag for microdosing. So tell us about how you got into that, and, and is it an extension of what you were doing at the beginning or what?
1: My interest in psychedelics has always been or has always been High end, high dose. As far as I'm concerned, if you're not discovering that you're transcendent, that your identity is a subset of you, that you may not have been born and you may not ever die, those kinds of things, I was not really very interested. And so the universe said, well, how about let's play a little joke? How about if we interest you in the absolute other end, where instead of working with 400 micrograms, you're working with And I said, well, who would care about that? Whatever it was. And a friend of mine said that Albert Hoffman had used these very low doses and had said that if Sandoz had paid attention to him, there would never have been a market for Ritalin or for Adderall. So
2: okay. It was a very curious yeah.
1: question. And my friend suggested, this is Robert Fort, F-O-R-T-E, that I look into microdosing. And and, and truly, my interests were, who cares? But I can tell you the definition of microdose no psychedelic effects, no visions, no choirs of angels, no finding your hand turning into a bunch of flowers and then a snake, no nine-foot anacondas eating you alive, and no incredible breakthroughs psychotherapeutically in terms of insights. That's a microdose, which it doesn't have that, And what it does seem to have is a remarkable capacity to help the body restore its equilibrium. And I'm using the generalization very deliberately because there are a great many conditions which are the body in disequilibrium a lot of mental illness and a lot of physical illness. And microdosing seems to be somehow supports a return to balance. And that's quite, Mm -hmm. and has turned out to be quite remarkable. And so I got into.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're clearly the prophet.
1: <laughs> well, the, my interest is, since I wasn't, just as I didn't have an academic career, I also wasn't going to be having a research career. and But I was a curious person. So I would say to people, microdosing might interest you. If you do that, let me know what you, what you experience. And so people would say, well, I don't know. I said, wait, wait, would you be willing to write that down and send it to me? So I began to accumulate little reports, and wow. that now, with the help of my colleague who joined me, Sophia Korb, we ended up with maybe fifteen hundred to two thousand sets of reports, and we added a daily check-in list, and we ended up with a massive data from fifty-one countries about how people themselves were using microdoses. We recommend, and if you go to our site. MicrodosingPsychedelics.com. psychedelics.com it simply says here are the dosage levels that people have found beneficial so our our research has been passive we've suggested safety and efficacy mm-hmm. but the reports that have come in have been generated entirely by people working on their own
0: sort of conduit through which individual yeah. experiences can get into a kind of public consciousness
1: yeah, that's a nice way of saying it, which is, and then of course we then turn around and, and what we've said in our cover letter is if you tell us how it works for you, we can then answer questions that other people with your condition will tell us. And that that cycle keeps going and is going even, even as I'm sitting here, there's some remarkable cases happening and I'm getting some reports and there are now other groups who have done similar kinds of surveys and we're beginning to share information about the problem for microdoses is it seems to help too many too many conditions and that scientifically is always suspect. Unless you change your paradigm. If we're talking of pharmaceutical pharmaceuticals are designed for as tight a focus as possible. That's just a business model. Vitamins we assume affect the whole body. Microdoses Work seem to work more like vitamins than by than pharmaceuticals. That's just a observation, not a uh, not a proof.
0: It's a very good analogy. And have you ever been pestered, or you know, do the FDA or the or the feds have you ever had any trouble with the uh, establishment?
1: We're it's like we're kind of ignored out to the side. Uh, I mean, here we have thousands of cases, and what I love is I read someone that says, "Well." microdose research is anecdotal and i think anecdotal means somebody told you something and i thought well what happens in a laboratory study say you're studying smoking cessation and you say to people how much are you smoking and they say two packs a day and then they go through the whole process and several months later you say how many cigarettes are you smoking they say one every two weeks that's not an anecdote because they were told it inside of a research project but if someone writes me weekly and tells yeah, me yeah. that their thyroid is no longer causing them their their low thyroid is no longer causing them fatigue. I think that's as good a data as the other. Because what it says is, why don't we look at because wait a moment, psychedelics thyroid. Let me do a quick scan of the literature since we now have databases. There is nothing. Well, wait a moment, there is something. There's one case. Now, in other sciences, think biology, think astronomy. One case suggests that there's something there, and you uh, get very excited. I mean, you you read a National Geographic thing and it says, "I went to the jungles of Java and I found one plant that nobody had seen before," and everybody says, "You you know that's a whole that now exists. We know that plant exists on the world. We could cultivate that plant. We could do all kinds of things." Yeah. yeah. So it's very important to realize that that your tools often restrict your thinking and the wonderful thing about what we call citizen science is people don't know what the limits are and they they discover things you would never imagine looking for
0: it's a new paradigm isn't it and it's uh, completely the opposite of, of what what as you pointed out has happened in medicine is it's become so commercial and it is
1: because if you think about it
0: pharmaceutical you companies
1: well, one of, one of the things that is different is the pharmaceutical model has a lot of power and a lot of value, but it, it comes out of you start with nothing. You create a molecule or you take, you derive something from a plant and you, you don't have a huge database. So you create it and you gradually find out that the substance in a certain dosage harms people in a lower dosage. It doesn't and so forth. When you work with psychedelics, you're coming from a massive citizen-generated database. You've already tested, so to speak, lots and lots and lots of variations before you go into, quote, science. So it's It's not puzzling to me because there's various cultural and commercial reasons. The same system that is used for unknown substances is applied to well-known substances. And there's a lot of, I read a lot of research and I thought the researcher knew perfectly well what the results were going to be. It was this question of how do you manipulate the system so that those research, those those results are pretty much obvious. And that's a fine, you know, I have no quarrel with that, but it's just, I'm not a researcher. I'm a searcher, which means I love discovering things and other people can then rediscover them or even you know, one of the tools that, that seems to be inappropriately used is a double blind.
0: Yes. Unfortunately, it's become almost uh, impossible to argue against. It's become a religious belief amongst many doctors. Exactly. It, it's, it's not being done double blind. It doesn't, it's not true. I mean, it's completely
1: different.
0: So what
1: I say to people is, if you want to do a double blind on the data that I'm sending you, God bless you. But don't say to me, well, we don't know if it's true because we haven't done a double blind. Because that's that's a religious test.
0: One thing I want to ask you is that, as you know, we've you know replicated, recovered the kind of insights you had back in the 60s, with, with uh, in treating depression with psilocybin, and the problem is not getting people well, but keeping them well. And and I'm just wondering whether whether microdosing might be a, a viable way of of holding people well once they've made that initial recovery. Do you have any experience of that?
1: There is a very good study in England of depression, and psychedelics improving depression, and these were treatment-resistant people. Unfortunately, because it was a laboratory study, when the study was over, they said to everybody, goodbye. The reason I know that, and it's a sad moment, but several of those people came to us and said, we can't, you know, the researchers basically have said, we're done, and we're getting depressed again. And we said, well, you live in England, there's something called fairy caps. It proliferated over England. They are a psychedelic mushroom. If you microdose, let us know. And of those two people, one of them found that microdosing totally alleviated his depression again, and the other didn't. Okay. Now neither of those cases ended up back in the research and the researchers' area because they were. That's not good science, and it's terrible humanitarian behavior. So That's
0: oh, terrible medicine, I agree. No. Again,
1: if we look at depression, in our initial group of maybe 800, maybe four or 500 were people who were treatment-resistant depression, because the only people who show up for citizen science microdosing are people for whom antidepressants haven't worked, and even the companies that sell antidepressants say, well, 30% of the people, it won't work, but we don't know which 30%, so everybody can take it, okay? That's a commercial decision. So... What we found, and and it was startling, is people would say, I'm on my second dose of microdosing. Microdosing is taken every few days. It's not every day. They would say, I'm back. Mm. I'm me," And it would be this startling awareness that they were not depressed. Now, no insights, Mm. no understanding, no childhood trauma, no whatever depression is. Caused by, and it's probably like everything else, multiple. They simply were not feeling symptoms. And they found, and again, we had two groups. Remember a a woman in the Seattle area who her own depression was alleviated by microdosing. She's a graduate student. And she was so excited that she told a lot of her depressed graduate student friends. And they all reported great improvement. And then she contacted me for the first time and she said, I have a question. I have two groups of friends. Some of them have said, after microdosing for a month or two, I stopped and my depression is gone. The others said, I need to continue microdosing because my depression comes back when I stop. Now, see, that's a research problem that I find very exciting. And one that as a citizen scientist, there's, not, there's nothing I can do about it. But I can give it over <laughs> to people like you, David, and the people that you know, because that's a very key result, and it may overlap with the people who are not helped by SSRIs, or it may not. But it's a clear scientific problem, and there is the database, and my job is now to hand it over and say, if you're really serious about learning about psychedelics and depression, here's a result that you won't find in in any high-dose study because you stop too soon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean and I'd be more than I'd be delighted to take up that challenge. The problem is getting someone to fund it. And that is there's still I mean, you might I find it surprising in the in the fifteen years we've been researching psychedelics, we've only got one grant from the government. Everything else is from philanthropists, despite the fact, you know, we have you know discovered what you previously knew that these are enormously powerful and important. You and I
1: both know we can least think of two major governments who for reasons that aren't even clear to us and we've spent a lot of time looking at it somehow turn away from things that improve people's health it's very puzzling, okay because they're not evil they're not bad people they're not even necessarily rigid people but there is something about well the nice thing about microdosing is it doesn't scare anyone you know if i say if you microdose you can maintain your prejudices, your rigidities, your bad don't worry. All you'll do is maybe get rid of your depression, or yeah. uh, recover some of your memory loss, or yeah. have less joint pain. But you won't, you know, you won't have to deal with the large kind of metaphysics that psychedelics yes. is. and that may be the difference.
0: I think you're right. It's a lot of people are still threatened by psychedelics with the trip. And a, lot of, and a lot of doctors are too, a lot of physicians. Are, they believe the lies that they created to justify the banning.
1: If you had 10 or 12, and you did, you know, if you have 10 or 12 years of medical training and somebody like me shows up and says, well, if you take this mushroom that grows outside your window and you use it, you can eliminate a great many of the medications." Okay. I'm, a, I'm following a case now and the person, uh, this is this is a case of again where nobody would ever think of psychedelics for lupus. Okay,
2: no, no, autoimmune no. disease.
1: Okay, this is a person who was on 14 medications because the way you handle lupus is symptom, 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 and lupus can have endless symptoms, and not doing well. After a month of microdosing, eight medications, and most of those with reduced dosage. Now that's That's worth studying, even if she's the only person in the universe
0: for which that occurs.
2: Totally. totally.
0: (laughs) Well, Jim, we've got to change the whole way in which doctors think about evidence and think about the past and, (laughs) and get them thinking more about the future.
1: You and I come, fortunately, from different enough sides that together we can bookend the problem. Indeed. And yes, we do. But medicine has done that before. Medicine has made major changes, and curiously, we have an an ally that we hadn't intended, hadn't thought about, which was greed, which is now, as money is pouring into endless psychedelic companies, the people who are, they all understand that in order to make massive amounts of money, they have to change the legislation. So they have to first be allowed to make a whole lot of money, and then we know that when that a that a good product actually drives a bad product out of you know out of the market, that you know that we don't do we don't give people lead and mercury anymore. You know they they have their effects, but we found that there are better things to use.
0: So I, I can well, Jim, that. it's very clear. Uh, sorry, we're gonna have, we've gone over for over the hour now. I'm gonna have to wind it stop you, but but look, it's. I think one thing I've I've learned a lot from you, but the one thing that's really come through what an optimist you are.
1: <laughs> oh, the alternatives were not as good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute delight talking to you. I'm I'm sorry it's taken so long for us to to, to talk in the flesh like this, but uh, it's been a great pleasure. And keep up the good work.
1: Well, thank you, and uh, let us continue to support each other, finding the places in the system where where change is being desired and and happening because there are places and thanks this was very very nice for me too
2: super take care thanks a lot take care
0: well that's the end of this episode of the drug science podcast thank you for listening but before you go i would just like to share with you a question from our drug science community members recently we recorded a very special podcast episode in which we invited all of our premium and philanthropic community members to ask me anything they like. Their questions were so good, I thought we should include one or two of them at the end of every podcast episode. So please enjoy this new segment of the show. Apologies for the audio quality as we recorded the session over Zoom. Hopefully they're vaguely relevant to what we've been discussing. And if you wanna ask me anything, perhaps we could do an Ask David Anything, part two. Enjoy. So I'm asking on behalf of Nathan, who's asking a little bit about what evidence is there around CBD oil that's currently available in the UK. And I'm assuming that he means that this is shop-bought rather than prescribed. Mm -hmm. Um, So CBD with no THC content. And personally, he's found that this seems to improve his quality of sleep. However, he's wondering whether this is just a placebo or if it's actually something that he's buying from the shop having an active effect. So the good thing about the UK, the one thing we got Right in the Misuse of Drugs Act in 1971, we said that cannabidiol was not psychoactive and therefore we're about the only country in the world that kept it legal. Trouble is the the populace and the the manufacturers had no idea about that until Americans started using cannabidiol and then they started realising they could sell it here. So now we've got this huge market of selling cannabidiol. Although there's some uncertainty about whether it's what the real concentrations are and, and how pure it is, by and large, what's being sold is... Is bioactive. And there's very little doubt now, I think the cannabis is not good for sleep. So one of the things we're doing in 2021, we 2021, we've got seven separate target diagnoses, and we may expand them. It's pain and it's anxiety, it's PTSD, it's Tourette's, it's multiple sclerosis, it's drug dependency, it's epilepsy. And they've got separate diagnostic ratings for each of those disorders, but every single patient in 2021 gets a sleep rating. And gets what's called a PHQ9, which is a general rating of quality of life, and the EQ5. And uh, yeah, we're finding the sleep ratings are improving. And cannabidiol, you know, does clearly seem to have a beneficial effect on sleep in very in different disorders. So I think there's an, undoubtedly what you're describing seems to make sense to me. Now, in terms of if you're worried about uh, getting a, a pure, you know, or high quality form, then you could register with 2021, and then you could get it on prescription rather than buying it over the counter and in fact you'll probably find it's probably cheaper in 2021.